Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Hey, yogis and meditators, Jessica here, and welcome to the season finale of season three of the One Sacred Pause podcast. It's um, kind of hard for me to believe that we are here already at the end of another season. So I just want to give out the biggest, most heartfelt thank you all to everybody for listening and supporting. And um, it means the world to me when I get just such really lovely comments and messages on Instagram and Facebook. And um, I put a lot of effort and a lot of soul into running this podcast trying to uh, create and contribute to the yoga community here in Norway and of course uh, abroad. A lot of listeners are international as well. Uh, I think topics related to yoga and meditation cross borders and cross cultures. So um, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Season four will be back starting in January. So I am busy now uh, scheduling people that I'm interviewing. So it's gonna be really exciting and really great. So just hang tight and maybe go back and listen to some of the previous episodes that you've missed uh, in the meantime, until January rolls around. So I, I just wanna leave uh, this week with a couple of announcements from the Atman Yoga School, since this is the last you'll hear from me on the air for a few months. Uh, we do have a few more spaces for our Tron time, 200 hour vinyasa and Ayurveda teacher training. It starts in, gosh, just a month, a month from tomorrow. It starts October 11th. I will not be running a 200 hour teacher training in Trondheim in 2020. So if you live in Trondelag or Northern Norway, uh, this is the opportunity, this training to join us um, until 2021, or we'll see what what happens um, when the time rolls around. Uh, then we have, we're about halfway full with registration for the 200 hour vinyasa and Ayurveda teacher training in Oslo starting in January. Uh, so please, go register or send me an email at hello at atmanyogaschool.com if you want to claim a spot for that. And then the last announcement is registration is open for our five-day vinyasa yoga intensive training. This is in May and this is open to teachers who have a 200-hour certification and are interested in diving deeper into advanced teaching techniques. So cueing, theming, sequencing, hands-on assists, all of that good stuff. Uh, this also is part of our bridge program. So it's a requirement for anybody who would like to attend our 340 hour advanced vinyasa yoga teacher training. The next round of that will be starting in 2021. So this is the perfect time if you've done a 200 hour training that was not with the Atman Yoga School, then jump on board, register for the five day intensive, and then you are good to go to register for the 340 hour training in 2021. So again, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And that's it. That's all. This week's episode is so powerful. It's a heavy hitter. And um, I'm just thrilled to be able to have these conversations and put them out into the world. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much. That's it. That's all. Welcome back to another episode of the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Windrill. And today, uh, listeners, I'm going to advise you to perhaps have a box of tissues or Kleenex nearby. Uh, this is a really important topic, one that I am so excited to be able to host a discussion about on my podcast. We are going to be talking about uh, what it's like to be a death doula and end-of-life services with yoga teacher, uh, energy worker, and uh, bereavement counselor, Leslie Connor. So welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and to, like you said, talk about a topic that I think there's a lot of interest in and not a whole ton of content to, to learn about. So I'm excited to share. Yeah, well, and so you and I met. We did uh, Aaron Telford's breathwork training in London this spring. And yes. um, we went around the circle. We did a little intro about who we were. And you, like, very briefly... Um, mentioned that you were a death doula and I basically I was sitting your mom was in between us and mm. uh, in the circle and I basically did one of those mental like turnarounds where it's like a woo -woo! wait what <laughs> what did she just say because I can honestly say I had never heard of a death doula before 
And I actually, at the time, had started um, a an Ayurvedic postpartum doula training. So, you know, a lot of people are familiar with doulas and, and their role in kind of being an advocate for the health and well-being of an individual in a certain period of life. But I'd always heard of it in connection to delivery of a baby and then Ayurvedically speaking, the first 42 days after a woman gives birth. So I was very much in this like doula space. And then you said death doula. And it literally just like sent chills through my whole body. And um, that's why I wanted to talk to you. uh, Because I understand if I'm not familiar about this, I'm sure a lot of other people are not can you maybe just give us a little overview on what, what is a death doula? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think um, just right away, you're so right. Until we hear about it or we go looking for it, there's really nothing about a death doula is in the mainstream consciousness. It's not something that we think of automatically the way some of us might think of a birth doula when it comes to labor and delivery and postpartum. But so a, a end-of-life doula or a death doula, as it's often called, is very similar to a birth doula. In fact, Henry Fursco Weiss, who is my end-of-life doula teacher, he's one of the people who started the, the entire concept because he said, there's birth doulas, why is there not the same level of support being offered and provided to people on the transition out? the same way there is on this transition in. And uh, regardless of going into your specific belief system, I think we can all understand that end of life tends to be a, and tends to almost always is an extremely emotional experience. What kind of emotion is completely up to the individual and the circumstance and the experience they're having. But it's an incredibly emotional time and is often overwhelming. A death doula can step in and help hold space, one, for the transition that's happening the same way a birth doula would, but also to help lend some awareness and guided intention to the processing of the experience itself. So the the spectrum of what an end-of-life doula can do for an individual is incredibly expansive. We can have somebody coming in from the beginning of a diagnosis to somebody who's only there for the active dying period to somebody who's supporting the family after the transition has occurred. So we have so much to talk about, and I'm excited to kind of go into the more um, detailed paths that the the, uh, practice has. But that's kind of the general uh, gist is an end-of-life doula supports the dying process and the loss process afterwards. Mm. How did you get into this? Like, how are you, how did you find your way into this path? Yeah, so that is, of course, I don't think anybody gets into end-of-life care, and that includes hospice nurses, that includes um, energy workers. I don't think anybody steps into the, the path without having had a personal experience that drew them to it. Um, so for me, when I was uh, 24, my uh, one of my very best friends ended up getting a uh, pretty aggressive cancer diagnosis, and within nine months had 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 died. Um, and it was a really eye-opening experience for me. One, as just a young person, you don't necessarily imagine you're going to be confronted with that kind of loss so early on in in life. Um, but also as a as a, as a uh, yoga teacher at the time and as a Reiki practitioner at the time, I had worked with my friend to help him process his experience through his treatment um, and eventually towards the end of, of uh, his death. And I realized I could be doing so much more because I think we all intuitively understand that yoga is a great life tool. It gives us a, a skill set that we can apply to all of our life experiences. Um, but as a practitioner, I kind of saw this huge gap in what we could think of as his medical and curative treatment, his traditional, you know, his doctors, and then 
his experience. And I, I, uh, I think what drew me towards wanting to become trained as an end-of-life doula and eventually going back to school as well was I wanted to be able to do more. I saw the potential of, of the kind of care we could be offering, and I, I, I wanted to do it, for lack of a better word, better. Mm. Which is such an important motivation. You know, yes. when, when we think, when we're called on such a deep, deep, visceral level where we're like, we can do better, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's dharma. <laughs> oh, and, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting back on myself and my capabilities and, you know, compassion is such an important, in, in fact, in my mind, it's the most important lesson we as humans have to learn. But... I think holding space for somebody who's experiencing incredible loneliness and uh, fear and regret and all these things I would imagine might bubble to the surface at the end of life, especially if it's a uh, kind of shocking diagnosis. Absolutely. Holding space for that range of intense emotion is something I don't know if I could do that. And so... I think it would take a very special type of person to be able to hold that space. And so that's why I'm saying Dharma is very much, I think, at play here. Um, what, what do you think is the reason, besides your personal experience with your friend, what is it about you that you think allows you to step into the gravity of this work? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think honestly, it, it came came down to for me. I saw that I could do it, and I saw very clearly that, regardless of how um, compassionate and loving and uh, supportive people people are in our lives, not everybody can hold this kind of space to, to borrow your phrase and, and do this kind of work. And I saw that I really could, it came very naturally to me. It felt, um, and and I think it all does come back to, as you said, Dharma, but it felt very much like if I can do this work and so many people struggle to do this work, I have to, and and I, and I want to. And, um, I think also it, it comes down to me as a, as a person. I, um, I am, I function well in situations with a high level of emotional intensity. And I think of that desire to serve and that desire to uh, really not fix, but just be with and, and be a companion to somebody who's going through an emotionally intense time was a huge motivating factor for me. Just the fact that I could do it and the fact that not everybody can. That was an awareness that came to me very early on. Mm. Absolutely. No, I think it's a very specific calling. And, you know, again, I hate to always compare and contrast, but there's so many birth doulas out there and it's such an important job and there's no stigma around it. And it's very like open and people talk about it and, um, you know, it's welcome in hospitals. It's welcome in traditional allopathic medicine systems. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what your experience has been kind of the compare and contrast, like in terms of what people's lack of awareness is, what the medical system's lack of awareness is, what is the response that you've seen to this type of work been in general? So I think uh, you're completely right that we have this openness to birth doula that we don't necessarily have in end of life. And I think that more so than it not being needed or being too esoteric or being, um, you know, too, just too much in general, because we uh, tend to neglect and ignore things that feel a little overwhelming. I think it's a bigger reflection on, on as a society and in particular a Western society, um, just our general view on death. And unfortunately we tend to uh, associate it as, as a couple of things. One, it's painful and it involves suffering in our minds, whether it's the, the physical pain of going through the dying process, which 
we know based on illness and other factors, a lot of people are uncomfortable when they die physically. Um, and then of course the, the, um, the level of empathy involved when you're witnessing somebody you love die, you're suffering in the sense of dealing with loss and dealing with the trauma of watching somebody you love be in pain. But I think it's also, um, this very unfamiliar thing we haven't we don't grow up learning about how do you die what is it like to die um the way we kind of we all get sexual education we all learn about uh birth and and pregnancy but we really don't get general education on dying in our school system um and really not in our personal lives and then on top of all of that we tend to have this idea that dying is incredibly private and personal and, oh, that just the family can handle it or the individual can handle that or that's between you and your higher power. And I think that it just kind of has created this curtain around the topic and everybody's a little bit afraid to peek behind it. But then, of course, we know anything we don't look at, anything we ignore and, and really push away just gets bigger and bigger. And, it, and it, I think there's so much fear and anxiety, whether you're the dying individual or you're the caregiver or you're the loved one feeling left behind. It's, it's not a pretty sunshine and roses topic, but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we just aren't looking at it. So it's seeming scarier and darker and, and more challenging than it has to be. Absolutely. I mean, death is not talked about and Mm -hmm. It's not at all celebrated in the way that it is in Eastern cultures. And, you know, even in my teacher trainings, we study the sutras, we read them a lot. And even the sutras are like, at at the moment of death, you should be chanting Om, the, the highest vibrational frequency that we as humans are able to create the sound with our body. Um... And I always, we always, it's always a point of conversation in my trainings, like, wow, okay, at that moment of death, you're on your deathbed. Imagine if you had people around you chanting with you, singing with you, holding you in this like very loving space. That would be such a different approach to just like you said, it's kind of, it's only for family, hush, hush, don't say anything. Like it's very sad. It's very lonely and hidden. Yeah, so separate from the rest of our lives. I think if, if we really compartmentalize it down into, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll die, as if it's not its own process, right? We don't say, oh, that person was born, and, and suddenly they weren't here, and suddenly they are. They went through an entire process of, of gestation, of literally pregnancy. Then there's a birth and labor we know can be an extremely long process, and then we celebrate the arrival. I think death is is the exact same tradition, and, and again, that's going into different belief systems, but from, from where I operate from, that transition in, it can be a mirror to our transition out, and if we were able to just view death as a process instead of an event that's inevitable, um, I think that it opens it up into a world of possibility as opposed to this dark space where it's just like, okay, this is how it has to be. Mm. And you were talking a little bit before we started recording about how you've gone through sort of in your role as a uh, end of life doula, you've gone through kind of an interesting transition where it used to be more of like the, the very immediate end of life scenario. And now it's a little bit more right after the diagnosis or at the beginning of the stage or the gestation, quote, yeah. you know, to mimic the uh, pregnancy analogy, the beginning of the stages of somebody who's just starting to make peace with the fact that they are going to die. Yeah. If if I had my way, anytime somebody has a, a diagnosis where there's a possibility that this could lead to the end of their life, it's an amazing time to start working with a doula. And I think, um, that has its own set of challenges because of the, and we talked about this a little bit, that culture of 
curative medicine, meaning and fight culture against disease, where we don't want to even consider the possibility of end of life because that's failing or that's giving up or that's surrendering. Um, and I think that that's such an unfortunate way of looking at it because, again, if we could just assess that possibility that, okay, this could be the beginning of the end of my life, I think it would just allow people to claim their experience as opposed to feeling so disempowered by not even being able to think about the possibility of dying or not even being able to express a fear that could happen or might happen. And I think a doula can so easily step in and say, hey, this is all part of the experience. Thinking about death doesn't mean you're going to die. Thinking about the possibility that this experience with disease could shift you as a, as a person doesn't mean you're giving up on your, or your previous life or your current life. So ideally, I think if we could start it from the beginning, we would be in such good shape to greet death in a way that is empowered and comfortable as opposed to shocking and sudden and, and, and scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I just keep coming back to the emotion of lonely, mm -hmm. I feel like so many people, uh, when, you know, I think there's a difference, at least in my mind between if we're talking about uh, a medical diagnosis for cancer or a, a chronic illness that will end in death versus say old age or dementia. Um, in my mind, those are a little different. Are those in your mind? Are those a little different? How you treat those coming yes. from your profession? So I have had uh, one of actually my very first uh, clients before I even was really intentionally doing this work, I tended to, um, just kind of attract individuals who are dealing with these kinds of thoughts or, or experiences themselves. Uh, and one of my, uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and my path here was in no way like, Oh, let's just do it. It was gradual and, and it built upon itself. Um, but one of my, my first clients who kind of came in, she's, she was, um, and, and currently still is a, a healthy woman, but she was in her, um, at the time she was in her, late seventies. And she said, I know I'm going to die. I don't know when, but my mother passed recently. My sister passed recently. And I know eventually as we all do, I'm going to die. And I just want to be able to talk about it and acknowledge it because whenever I do with my friends and family, they say, stop, you don't say that. You're not going to die. You're healthy. You're well. And she goes, I know I'm healthy and well. I just want to get this out of me and into the open. I want somebody else to hear that I'm going to die someday. Mm. And that was an incredibly empowering experience for her to move past some of the grief she was holding. And also, I think whenever we have anybody die in our lives, it always reflects our own mortality back onto us. And that can either be something that fills us with fear of, yeah, I'm going to, one day I'm going to die too. Or it can fill us with a a feeling of connection and resonance with the people we love of we're all going to go through this. We're all going to have this experience just like anything else, just like birth can unite us. Death can unite us. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be negative. Um, and I think that that was kind of really eye opening to me in that very beginning of, wow, people just want to talk about it. People just wanted to acknowledge themselves and their feelings specifically around this topic that our friends and family often shut down because we're uncomfortable with it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Like you and I just talking about it. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm just, I am so baffled that this is not more prominent in conversations. Like, oh my God, let's talk about death and talk about it in a real way. Not in a like, oh, we're all going to die. Or, yes. you know, the very flippant, like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Or there's Absolutely. all these very, um, I don't know, they're not very thoughtful yeah. attitudes towards death. And kind of what you've been saying this whole time, I think if we made it more acceptable, if we made it more part of the general conversation from mm -hmm. a young age, like, yeah. okay, what is death? Well, this is the cycle. It's not just nothing. 
it's how everything kind of you're born, you grow, you die. It's like the seasons of the of the year, it's the seasons of nature and finding a little bit I mean acceptance would be amazing. I think there's always though however going to be a little resistance to like the ego of actually dying, but kind of like what you've said, can we make that process more comfortable? Can we make it more acceptable? Can we make it more loving? Yeah. Where people can talk and express their emotions freely and their fears freely mm-hmm. without feeling like they have to put on a brave face or, you know, be something they're not, or, oh, I don't want to burden them. Like, yeah. I, I oh, imagine that's, that's one you hear a lot. Yeah. The, the, it's one of the most challenging things I think I encounter, and I encounter it so frequently, which is people who, exactly what you said, don't want to burden the people around them with their emotional experience. They don't want, they know their loved ones are dreading their death. So how can they, how could they add to that dread? When in reality, talking about it with your loved ones, I'm scared to die. Or I'm really angry. I'm so angry. Is and, and we're using really simplistic words. We know our life is way more complicated, but for the sake of conversation, kind of bundling our emotions into these neat words of angry or scared, um, I think is helpful for, for, like we said, conversation. But when we talk about them with our loved ones, two things happen. One, we release some of that emotional energy instead of keeping it swirling within us. And two... We end up creating a really significant connection with our loved one. And whether or not you are the individual dying or the loved one who who is left behind, you have that connection. And it is significant. I think that if I've learned anything from doing this work is... Our relationships, our experience is incredibly significant. And that, sh- it deserves our, our awareness. And there's really nothing we can do at the end of our life to destroy our, our relationships. When we talk about things and we're, everybody's coming from an open space, I think the, the connection is just profound. And it, it helps us let go of some of that uh, pent up or held in energy that so many people carry into into their death. Mm. Um, it did make me want to say, um, I found. Let me think of the best way to phrase this. Um, This work is particularly good for the times we are in because while religion has, for the most part, done a pretty good job of giving people guidance of how to handle end of life and death, and of course that varies based on on religion, but there is this element of ritual and tradition and and, uh like sequence truly in the most basic sense that gives people such support and comfort during the end of life. But as we, as literally, I think a planet shift towards a, a less religious mindset and into a more spiritual one, people have lost those rituals and sequences and guidelines for, for dying and, and supporting those who are dying. And I think that's one of the best things that's coming from this, this um, a little bit more secular work is it doesn't leave anybody behind. It really is holding space for you and your belief system, you and your emotional, physical, mundane experience. And I think that's really liberating because for so long, death kind of felt like it was held solely in the domain of religion, returning to God or returning to whoever your divine source is. And I think that that's so important and significant for the conversation, but really at the end of the day, depends on the individual and just giving support without the, the strings attached up to religion, I think is, 
is honestly revolutionary. Oh, I agree. I mean, you just <laughs> said that so beautifully and eloquently. Like, death is not uh, separate from every single human. Well, every single being goes through that experience at some time or another. And yeah, if it's reserved only for those who have a religious viewpoint or practice, then that makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. I really think so. Mm. Do you have, are you part of a community of other people who are doing this work or what do you see or what do you hope happens in terms of growing and expanding awareness around end of life um, doula services? So I think that's a great question. And, um, so I, I had the, the, um, the pleasure of being trained as an end of life doula with a group in, uh, up in New York, but, um, as under Henry Fursco Weiss, who I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, but I had the opportunity to do my training in that setting. Um, but honestly, I have to say my, biggest community and the uh the people who I'm having them I think the most interesting conversations with and this isn't a surprise but it's I think uh interesting are hospice workers and they really are the doulas without the name these are the people who are with us when we die they're they have uh they are the the corner of the medical world that is really here to support end of life and to the credit of these incredible workers and nurses and healthcare professionals who are working in hospice, they are doing so much work that they're not trained to do. And I don't say that in any way to discredit them. I say it to their credit of they're doing all of this emotional labor and, and really energy work with their clients, but it's not part of their training. It's not something that the medical world has said, you know what, this is really significant. We talk about it in palliative care and we talk about it in hospice a little, but it's much more focused on physical comfort and the very human side of death, which we know is not pretty and really uncomfortable and, and not private in any way. Um, but I think that because they're already doing this work so beautifully to the best of their abilities without literally any help, really, it they have so much to offer and so much to, to teach. And I just adore talking to them. Um, and they are the people who are always saying, I need to do this training. I need to go into this work. This is the work I want to be doing. But then unfortunately, we also run into the the red tape of Western medicine and our hospitals and our hospice centers of how at the end of the day, a lot of them are corporations and there's a lot of um, resistance to holistic care and kind of a, a fear of, oh, well, what happens when we invite emotion into an energy into into this world does it discredit science does it say that you know things are right and wrong in a way that makes people uncomfortable and I don't think that's the case um, but so in a very long-winded answer to your question I think um, hospice workers are just really a community I'm feeling very comfortable bouncing ideas off of and learning from and, and engaging with and I also think that that's that's the next wave if I could if this training, this mindset, really, this perspective on death was part of a standard hospice training or palliative care training, I think, and it is to its credit, we, we, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if the, the scope wasn't expanding already, but I think they're going to be part of the community that really shifts how we view death. Hmm. Which is amazing. So amazing to hear. Yeah. It kind of brings me to a question, though, that's uh, a little bit triggering. And I wonder, uh, do you think access to the services you provide and colleagues like yourself, do you think it's limited to people who have access to monetary funds? Like, is there, is there, a, is there a divide between people who can access? I mean, I guess, I guess the same could be said with yoga also. Absolutely. I was going to say, I think that whenever we get in, whenever we talk about the wellness community, we always have to acknowledge that there is just a huge and unavoidable issue of privilege in the world. Um, and it's so, um, it's so, 
I want to say unfortunate, but that's not even the word. It's so ridiculous because wellness and so much of what we're talking about, you just need your body. You just need your mind. You just need space and time. Um, but then, of course, when we factor in the practitioner, the fact that whenever you're trying to make something your career or your life, we can't do that without money. We can't do that without charging for our services. Um, and this is something that, that of course, comes to mind when you think about end-of-life care, especially when you think about the astronomical costs associated with, especially in the U.S., and, and um, maybe you can uh, fill in like, the gap in my knowledge uh, for uh, elsewhere, but in the U.S., nursing home care or and hospice care is just a huge expense on its own. And then when we start factoring in what is at this point, and I hope it changes in the future, um, but supplemental care, whenever we're talking about holistic care, so the work that I'm doing as a, as a doula and as an energy worker, um, it's not covered under insurance for most people and most plans. And I think that it is inaccessible. And, and I think that as it becomes more, honestly, as it, as it becomes normalized in our society, it's going to be in huge part on the practitioner to, to make sure that we're doing all we can to provide this care, which we know every single person needs and deserves and should have the right to access, um, regardless of their, of their economic status. Uh, and I'll say, uh, my teacher, Henry Fursco Weiss, he, he told us, Practice on a sliding scale. If you know somebody needs this work and they cannot pay for it in the way that maybe somebody else you're working with can, meet them in the middle. And I think that that, of course, comes back to the, the ever-present conversation in energy work and, and the yoga world and the spirituality world of boundaries and how do we serve while also not completely draining ourselves? How can we be of service and also survive and, and, and more so than that, thrive as an individual? But I think it's, I'm, I'm so glad you asked the question and I think it's going to be a challenge as with, I think our whole wellness community is going through that challenge of how can we make the space more accessible? How can we make it more inclusive? And I think that it's going to, it, I think we can't have that conversation without acknowledging the, the economic accessibility of, of what we're offering. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and thank you for saying that because I agree. It's something that needs to be at the forefront of the conversation. Uh, Death with dignity is not only for the rich. No, and, and right now, unfortunately, it, it kind of is. And, and it doesn't have to be. And there are many people who are having beautiful experiences at end of life without spending a lot of money to do so. But I think let's not pretend that's not a, a huge advantage to have, have the money to provide or the money to pay for a certain level of care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also think if just by starting to normalize the conversation, that could have a trickle down effect where perhaps if people don't have the monetary resources to access a trained person like yourself to actually come in and, and do the actual work that you do, just starting to have those conversations, just like you said earlier, like, hey, I'm really scared. I'm really angry. Mm -hmm. Starting to open up and I... You know, I would say this is actually, in general, for all well-being, prior to uh, the death phase of life, is just emotional health. Yeah. Normalizing all speak about emotions and making it okay to vocalize experience. Yeah, I think that it, you're exactly right. And, um, and, and to go back to what I said, where it, it, it is almost ridiculous that it, it is so limited in, in who has access to it right now because we don't need anything special to do it besides our awareness and, and our willingness to be open with one another. Um, and I think that if we do start to normalize, literally just normalize the fact that death doesn't have to be grotesque and scary every single time for every single person. I think that if we can get through that, that, um, 
just it's not it's a misunderstanding of the experience uh i think that that will all of a sudden make a lot of things more accessible and can have a huge trickle trickle down effect to to borrow your term on everybody on everybody who who goes into death Mm -hmm. yeah when also what you said too, make it an empowering experience Taking control of the narrative rather than just having to be like a victim, like, oh, long suffering victim. Uh, Oh, this is happening to me, but oh, I won't say anything and I'm not going to speak up about it because I don't want to upset people around me. I don't want to burden them. Like, there's a whole um, chain, I think, of lingo that kind of goes together in that story. Definitely. And it plays out in movies, it plays out in TV, it plays out in real life. And I think that's very much a Western attitude. Yes. About how we approach. It's it's so micro. It's so egotistical. It's so narcissistic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are, they'll be like, oh, I'm being so selfless by not burdening people and not talking about it. And it's actually the opposite. Mm-hmm. People are very selfish when they refuse to talk about their emotions. And then it's like you have these two people sitting side by side in a room, silent, and their their mind, the monkey mind, is just going crazy yeah. trying to make sense of the experience they're both sharing together. And yet mm-hmm. they're not talking about it together. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds silly, but but we've all I think we can almost almost everybody. And or they will eventually in their life have a, a moment where they're with somebody they love or or are close to who's dying, and all of a sudden it's like you have no relationship with this person in terms of the you know social scripts or or um, how you normally interact just kind of goes out the window, and suddenly we think, what should I be doing right now? What should we be talking about? Is if I talk about my day, am I? Or is it is it rude because this person's day is completely different? They don't have a normal routine anymore. Do I talk about how sad I am? Is that fair? Because clearly they're sad too. They don't want to die. Or do I um, bring up this thing that's been bothering me? Do I heal this wound between the two of us? Because let's be honest, even our most beautiful, lush, fulfilling relationships, there's conflict associated with that conflict is exists within intimacy but we kind of get this idea of oh these this is my last time with this person or my last however amount of time with this person we i'm not going to muddy it muddy it up with our our past issues when in reality what better time to get it out in the open to talk about it to release it to come to a point where you both feel a little more settled or comfortable or or just connected because of the issue so I think it's it's funny. All of a sudden, we're we're sitting beside our, our loved one, and we're like, oh, I I have to follow this level of decorum. I have to be reserved. I have to be the silent rock supporting them, or we avoid this situation entirely because we don't think we're capable of being stoic or reserved. Mm. It's very interesting. Yeah, really interesting how we respond. I hate to bring this up, but I, I'm going to go there because it's, I don't know, it's just what I think about. Um, I'm a huge dog lover. Uh, I have two Huskies, and I've put a few dogs down um, in my life. And, you know, you always hear or see a lot of articles about veterinarians, and one of their biggest, ups, most upsetting things is when families bring their dog in to be put down, and the family says, I'm too upset you do it. And then the family leaves and then the the dog is scared and disoriented and led into the back room where they smell, you know, chemicals and death. And even though the veterinarians are so kind and so loving, Mm -hmm. you know, the dogs, many dogs are left to die by themselves, scared and lonely and uncertain. And I think about that and how I could see how that exact situation could be mirrored in the human experience as well, where the family or somebody just is like, I can't, I'm not strong enough. I can't handle this. It's better. They're sedated. They're not even going to know anyways. Like I'll just, you know, step out when it happens. And I wonder, have you ever had anybody bring that concern up to you either from the side of 
the person who's chronically ill or is is approaching death or from a family member who's been like, Hey, I'm really worried about my reaction. Yeah. So this is a, this is a loaded um, topic because it kind of goes in. There's, there's two big elements at play. There's the, there's the perspective from the dying individual. And then there's the, the, the caregiver or loved one. We'll kind of lump them together. Cause I think at some point or another, most of our closest loved ones um, in that situation are in some way a caregiver, whether they're physically providing care, emotional support, or just holding space energetically. Um, and I think that those two factors coming together creates a really interesting situation where, one, the dying individual has this feeling of complete lack of control in the situation. And I think I'm, I'm so glad that we're, we're kind of taking this little tangent because uh, I think some of your listeners will be interested in, in the specifics of the kind of work that a doula can do. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, please. One of, one of the, I think, most helpful and empowering parts of working with anybody in holistic end-of-life care is that you have the opportunity to plan your emotional exit. We tend to get the medical side of things figured out very quickly. Okay, I'm either dying in a hospital, I'm dying in a hospice center, I'm dying at home. And we kind of work those things out with our insurance, with our, um, with our doctors. And then that care kind of stops. We, not to say our medical care doesn't stop, but in terms of what comes next, there usually isn't a guide. So we start to just feel like, okay, I'm going to sit in my bed and then my loved ones will sit around me. Wow, that leaves a lot open and and up to possibility. Planning for the emotional exit can include talking about things like, what do you want your loved ones to discuss with you? Do you want them to read from a book of favorite poems or your favorite novel? Do you want them to tell you a story about your past experience with them, whether it's a childhood friend or, or your partner or your best friend, right, who can come in and say, okay, uh, Jay wants you to share a story about, you know, a, a good, a, a lovely memory you have or a significant memory you have. Or they want you to read from this book, or they want you to play a song from this playlist. That shifts the entire interaction before it even begins. Because instead of feeling like, oh my gosh, all of the pressure is on me to make conversation or to do the right thing or to know exactly what's the perfect reaction to the moment. And it takes all of that guesswork out. And suddenly the person who's dying has the control to say, this is what I want. This is what I'm comfortable with. And this is what I want to be doing. And the person who's visiting or spending time has the opportunity to follow a little bit of a guideline, which again, takes so much pressure off. So I think that that, that emotional exit plan, and, and we kind of, that was a very cursory uh, gloss over it. But I think of just, even little things like, do you want somebody to hold your hand or do you not want to be touched? All of a sudden, that's there's no question there. There's no discomfort. It's okay, you can go in and hold their hand or you can get in bed with them. That changes everything. Or here's a chair. You can sit right here. It kind of takes that guesswork out. Mm. Um, and then on the other side of that, for the, the person who's coming to spend time with the dying individual you just, it's an overwhelming experience almost always. And I think it, it kind of, it can be to go to your original question of how do you encounter people who, who just want to stay away from it the same way we stay away from the back room at the vet. Yeah. I think it's, it's just, I think it's a fear response and, and rightfully so, because we're not used to it. And, and it's, terrifying sometimes to imagine life or just existing without somebody you really love. But I will say, I don't think anybody regrets making a connection while they still can in the physical world. And I think that a doula can very uh, effectively step in and, 
explain that there's no right or wrong. If you come in and cry the whole time, that's okay. Chances are the dying individual is going to be able to resonate with that and sit with you, maybe cry with you. Or you're going to come in and have a, a chance to confront some of the unknown that's making the situation so overwhelming in the first place. How we do that is another story. I think it, it, how do we, how do we help anybody do anything on a personal level? And it really comes down to the individual and and what they need to hear and what they need to, to say and how they need to process before they feel comfortable putting themselves in an unfamiliar and almost always uncomfortable situation. Does that, does that kind of touch on it a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it it definitely clears up a little bit, like the role of the doula and it makes perfect sense. And as you were explaining it, like my body just softened a little bit because I was like, Oh, okay. That it's exactly right. Like you're the one in charge. I mean, you're not the one in charge. You're the one uh, sharing the instructions from the one in charge, but it gives order and it gives a sense of like, Oh, structure. Okay. We know what's happening. And I imagine that's very calming in a time that feels very chaotic. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of the most comfort structure can be so comforting. We kind of, um, and depending on, on the time, kind of person you identify as, um, but it can structure can be oftentimes thought of as, you know, too much or restrictive or limiting. And I think in this situation where there's really no structure, where we, nobody has any concrete answers of, of how to, of what's happening and how to handle it and what the best thing to do is. So when we give in, we give these, these really loose, simple structures and sequences to, to the situation, I think it's, it's just comforting and reassuring and, and it kind of gives us a little bit more of a footing to navigate the space. Mm. Do you use any sort of like, this is a weird question, but do you, do you mm-hmm. use any sort of like workbooks or homework assignments or specifically for the loved ones who are going to be losing somebody in their family or a friend? Like, is there any sort of structure in that way in yeah. how you help people process emotion? So I haven't worked with with anyone um, who I think would specifically benefit from uh, an extreme structure like a worksheet or something like that. But I'm always willing to suggest uh, if I think somebody would benefit from from literature or um, anything else that's a little bit more concrete, I will share that with them. I think Henry Fursco's book, uh, Care for the Dying, is... um, pretty fantastic in terms of giving people an idea of what they can do as a caregiver. But really, I would say the number one thing I end up talking about with caregivers and loved ones is nurturing themselves, whether that means uh, release, like energy work, standing outside, going for a walk, journaling or my favorite because I just think it's it gives us that sense of privacy but we still get to feel so open while we're doing it writing letters whether you send a letter of any intention of sharing it writing a letter to the person or people you're you're going through the situation with is incredibly helpful getting things out on paper out of your body you can physically see it I don't care if it's in your notes on your phone or a journal or the back of a bill it doesn't matter writing down your feelings is just I think liberating for for caregivers loved ones and of course dying individuals I would say it's one of my number one things I, I say is just if you can't quite have a conversation right now write it down. If you burn the letter at the end, that's okay. Just get it out. Get it out of the body. Acknowledge the feeling. Finish your thought. Because our monkey minds, we've talked about this a little bit, they're all over the place. We're emotionally stimulated. We're in an unfamiliar environment. Sometimes we're in a hospital or a hospice center or somebody's bedroom that we've never been in before. And it all kind of feels unfamiliar. Just finishing a thought isn't always possible in our mind. 
But when we have to write it out on paper and put a period at the end of the sentence, we have a little bit more uh, ease finishing a thought. And I think that's so helpful in a situation where there are so many what feel like loose ends and possibilities and so much unknown. Your feelings, you have them. They're yours. Write them down. Get them out. Mm. Yeah, that was where I was going specifically was, yeah, journaling and writing and yeah, I can just imagine that would be so incredibly helpful. Um, but but other times it's, I think that, um, and that we're getting a little more esoteric now, but I think that's fine. We're a little ways in. We're yoga um, teachers. What can you yeah, do? exactly. Um, I think that things like restorative yoga can be just incredibly helpful for processing the experience of loss. Um, and I think also simple things, natural things. Like if I could, if, if I could tell every single person who's going through grief to get themselves into a body of water, a natural body of water, but a pool will do just fine. Feel yourself enveloped in water. It literally helps us feel better and feel more capable of handling our emotional situation. So it can be, um, my advice can be very esoteric like that, or it can be a little bit more of have a conversation. Ask this person how they feel. Be brave and say how you feel for this one thing. It can be one sentence and that can be enough. But I think it it really just comes down to most often helping people release. Because whether we've been conditioned to socially or we're uncomfortable uh, with our emotional experience or we just have no idea of the subtle body and our energetic experience, because let's, I mean, we're talking about it very openly, but the average person maybe hasn't had the the privilege and pleasure of of exposure to subtle body energy work and, um, and self work in particular, not even talking about going to see an energy worker. Mm. But I think when, when we, uh, when we don't have access to those things and, and especially in in the U S where emotional intelligence isn't exactly, um, at the forefront of most people's goals, right? We don't even really talk about it that much. (laughs) I think that, that it's teaching people or or guiding people a better word, facilitating, I think is the best word for actually, um, release and emotional expression is part of the the biggest chunk of the work. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I love that you brought in the restorative yoga and, um, you know, one of the tools that I love is yoga nidra. And um, it's when I went through, well, first shock of, of a rare cancer diagnosis three and a half years ago. And, you know, exactly like you've said, it's just, it's such a weird, almost indescribable period in your life. Um, especially if you're young and you get a weird medical diagnosis and you have to very quickly, uh, figure out your stance on mortality. And, you know, I was very lucky because I had yoga and I had Ayurveda and I had meditation and I had all these tools previously to getting this weird diagnosis, but it doesn't exempt you. You know, you still have this very surreal floating, oh my God, I'm going to die experience when literally maybe an hour before you were just going about your day planning your life like oh what should I make for dinner tonight <laughs> yeah, no, truly yeah I mean it's 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 really it's shocking to the system in every sense of the word and um you know and then going through treatment and I had a weird experience my husband had already moved to Norway and so I was living at the American Cancer Society house in Salt Lake City during my treatment you know, very isolating, very, and they were amazing, absolutely amazing, but still very isolating, very um, emotionally shocking. And restorative yoga and yoga nidra were the only practices I could do in my Ayurvedic dinacharya. But, um, you know, so I'm a huge believer in that. And then after my treatment ended and I was healthy and I continue to be healthy, which is so amazing. Um, these are practices that I 100% stand by for dealing, just like you said, with grief and trauma and actually emotions that you don't even have a word to describe Exactly, because they're so deep, they're so foreign, they're so powerful. Mm -hmm. And, 
Um, I was so fortunate earlier this year, I went to Bergen, Norway, and gave a speech at the Scandinavian Sarcoma Conference on using restorative yoga, yoga nidra, and Ayurveda as complementary medicine to allopathic or Western uh, cancer treatments. Amazing. And yeah, I mean, I'm super passionate about this and I hope to continue this advocacy type of work because just like you, I think it's just not well known enough. And there's a little bit of that pushback, a little bit of that stigma, like, wait a minute. Okay. This is woo woo. This is foreign. This is Eastern. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, no, let's strip it down. Let's talk about what it actually is. What it is are techniques to calm the parasympathetic nervous system. To allow people to breathe fully and deeply, to be able to allow people to name an emotion, to process and release so that ultimately they can be present for whatever their experience is. Exactly. I think that was a beautiful way to put it. And I think that's it. I mean, that is the, at the core, the philosophy of end of holistic end of life support is how can we help people have the tools to process their experience to self-soothe and to truly, I think, understand and and even eventually relish in the opportunity to be with themselves, to sit with themselves. And I think that that restorative yoga teaches us that so well. I think yoga nidra helps do very similar things. And, and it, it it's empowering. At the end of the day, all of it comes back to empowering us to have our experience. What happens beyond that is entirely up to the individual. But if we can, at the core, empower people to to have their own experience, everything shifts. Mm. Absolutely, I think that's I think that's like the the summation of our conversation. Leslie is empower and normalize. Yep, yep, and, and I think those are just that. You're exactly right. If we Death, empowerment, and normal normal don't usually go together. Yeah. Bring them together is the ultimate goal. And I think that's I mean, that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to sit down and talk with you is we need to have conversations. And I hope that that your listeners will use this as a prompt to have some conversations about their feelings, whether they are in the process of, of moving towards the end of their life or way far out from that experience, we all know eventually we're going to encounter it. And and sooner than that, most of us are going to encounter it with our loved ones. So let's start talking about it. Absolutely. I think, I mean, you said it before we got on recording. Every single person has already had some experience with death. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it is totally mind boggling that we've made it so separate from our normal life, our day-to-day life when it's actually a huge normal part of our day-to-day life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, that's, that's kind of the the funny part about it is because people ask me all the time, how do you do this work? How is this? I could never do that. Or why would you even want to do that? I've been asked before. And I think it's the, the more you, you, and confront is such an aggressive word, but the more you open up to 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 death and and not even your I well, I was gonna say not even your own mortality, but I think that coupled with the fact of we're all going through this experience at some point and it's so challenging for people around us, how can we lean into it in a way that feels natural and and not woo-woo and not so esoteric, but that still feels special and significant. Because I think it's 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 life work way more than end of life work. And I think that's what why it's what I always like to tell people is you realize very quickly when you're working with end of life, it's just life. It's mm. literally just life. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, oh, go ahead. No, please, please do. No, I was just going to say, I I admire and respect you so much, Leslie. I think this is incredibly important work. And, you know, if, if people ask you, like, how can you do that? Or I could never do that. All I can say is, thank God you are doing that work. And people like you, you mentioned the hospice workers are doing this work because 
yeah, I think there is a lot of fear because it triggers something within us, like our own mortality. And, um, you know, like we said at the beginning of the conversation, it takes a really special, specific person to do this work, at least now. Hopefully that will change with more education around it. But um, I don't know. I just I'm I'm super inspired and really just. Yeah, I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And I, I, I'm so glad you added that little bit at the end where hopefully it will be very different in the future. <laughs> where the, the element of bravery doesn't have to be so far in the forefront. Because I think that we're, we are all so truly capable of having a, a empowered experience with, with dying and with death and with loss. And I, I don't think it's as far out of reach as, as it seems because I think as soon as we look at it, as soon as we start engaging with it, that curtain that we talked about in the very beginning of, of our, our conversation kind of drops and we're like, oh yeah, I can, I can do this. I can handle this. I can, I can be here in this experience. Um, it's the unknowing. It's the, it's the neglect and the avoidance and, and the, uh, consequential fear that comes that is making it so heavy and it doesn't need to be at least not in the way that it is right now Mm. oh leslie thank you so much for coming on and sharing your work and your thoughts and your philosophy and um let's keep the conversation going (laughs) i think this is so so important and uh Yeah. Well, thank you for being on the podcast and your time. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. It was truly a pleasure to chat with you. And thank you for for sharing your experience, too, because I think it obviously is an important perspective. And I think it's so much better when we have a a two-sided conversation. So thank you for being such an amazing partner to discuss with. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And bye-bye. Have a great day. Yeah.